on page 119, uh, if you have the book in your hand, uh, we're at the chapter called The Service of Love. And the person who's going to be explicating the text for us is Eben Leader. If you'll recall, uh, we are studying mystical texts as understood by the Hasidic tradition. So the, Hasid, the Hasidic tradition was taking the Kabbalah and trying to figure out how that applies to regular Jews in the pews, right? How, how does that apply to our daily lives? What does it have to teach us? Because Kabbalah could be so esoteric and so out there, right? Um, for the intellectual elite who were very involved in this language, in this jargon, in the texts, in the tradition of explicating those texts from Torah all the way through Midrash, all the way through Kabbalah. They, they were very familiar with all that, so they spoke in code that's very hard for us to access. So the, the Hasidic tradition takes a lot of those ideas and some of those texts uh, and unpacks them for for everyday life in their time. The text that we're going to be dealing with uh, from the Noam Elimelech, which is Rabbi Elimelech of Luzhensk, uh, remember people were off, teachers were often known by the name of their work, their greatest work, their most famous work. So his work is called the Noam Elimelech, and so often they just refer to the Noam Elimelech, right, rather than Rabbi Elimelech of Luzhensk. Is he the one we sing about? Which one? I don't know. That is an excellent question, Sarah Moskowitz, that you are way more the aficionado than I uh, in that set of uh, Yiddish references. I don't know. We should find out. So um, so the Noam Elimelech uh, is the text that we're going to be looking at. And if you read it already, if you read the chapter uh, and Eben Leader's discussion of this text, then you'll know that um, most likely this is, in his opinion anyway, being directed to people who are trying to figure out how to beat tzaddikim. Right? So the tzaddik in training. So the person who really wants to be a righteous person and maybe even achieve the, you know, the level of tzaddik that are, that it's touching that mystical, magical realm. We don't have to worry about that necessarily. This still applies to us, thank God. Um, but that's who this is being directed at. So a little less than the regular person. I mean, it's not directed as much to the regular person as to someone who is trying to figure out how to become a tzaddik. So let's look at the text. Who would like to read on page 119, begin reading the uh, Noam Elimelech? But not everyone at once, because that would be awkward. That's where, yep. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau. Genesis 32, 4. We read this verse with the verse, a person wrestled with him. Genesis 32, 25. And with Rashi's explanation that the word vayavet, wrestled, is related to raising dust. Okay, so now we all go, what? Already. What is he talking about, right? This is how these texts begin. This is Jewish text study. So it is taking a text from Torah. All texts, of course, are rooted in Torah. And it's taking a piece of the Yaakov story. When Yaakov is going back to meet his brother Esav, remember Esav wanted to kill Yaakov because Yaakov stole the birthright and the blessing? He's going back to meet a mur- maybe murderous Esav many, 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 many years later. He's had wives. 
He's had a mess of kids, if you'll recall, right? And he sends messengers ahead of him to appease Asaph, because he hears Asaph's coming with 400 men, right? Ya- Yaakov approaches his homeland, his home territory, and he hears that his brother Asaph is coming out to meet him with 400 men. What does he think? Uh, warfare. Uh, warfare. The ancient Near East, that's all you can assume. 400 men are riding towards you. You don't have a great relationship with the guy who's in charge of those 400 men. Your first thought is uh, warfare. These are retreats. <laughs> but Yaakov is very clear that he wants to come home. So retreat's not an option unless he's attacked, right? Then then he'll have to. Um, but what he does is very clever. He sends out uh, He sends out messengers that come with gifts. And when they encounter Esau, they're supposed to get on their knees and say, these are from my master Jacob, your servant. And this happens over and over and over and over again. So that by the time Esau and Yaakov meet, Esau is appeased or at least assured that, that Yaakov doesn't mean trouble. Because if he has, if the report came to Yaakov that Esau is riding in with 400 men, surely the word got to Esau that Yaakov is coming with a huge amount of wealth and people. So what might Esau be thinking? Same thing, war. He's coming to take back. He's coming to execute the birthright that he stole from me, right? And so all around, it's a very, very likely accidental war that could happen. Yaakov's very clever about wanting to make sure that doesn't happen. So when they meet, it's all, it turns out it's all good. But recall just before he sets out for that meeting, he sends messengers ahead of him and then he lies down and puts a stone under his head, divides his family into two in case one camp should be attacked. One will get away, right? And what happens to him? Dreams. He has a vision, a dream. And in that vision, what happens? He's wrestling. He's wrestling with an ish. We, ish means person, man. Later, it's a malach. Turns out to be an angel. Later, it said, I saw God face to face. So now it's God. We have no idea. We're not going to bother with that right now. That's for Torah study another time. Right now, all you need to know is ye'avek to wrestle, right, is being tied to the Hebrew root of that, which is, or, or, or can sound like, because the letters are the same, which is avak. So we have ye'avek, and if I could write Hebrew, life would be a lot simpler, ye'avek, and it's being related to the Hebrew, right, avak. Now, you don't have to know Hebrew, to see this, right? You see that? These are the same letter. These are the same letter. These are the same letter. You see that? So wrestle and dust. So this is how Jewish text study works, right? You read it in English and go, what? Right? Because the rabbis are playing. The tradition is playing with the avek. Because what probably is Yavek most related to in the story? Yavek. Ya. A. Kov. Letters transposed. Letters transposed. Yavek wrestled Yaakov. Jacob. Oh. He, the heel grabber. Right? 
Akev, the ankle. Right? His name is Yaakov because he was grabbing onto the ankle of Esau as they were born as twins. So this is the beauty of knowing the tradition. It's the complication of reading this in English and trying to make any sense out of it on one's own. All right, so the rabbis who are explicating this text, this is the genius for me of Jewish text study also, the beauty and genius of it, is Yavik, he's wrestling, and that is related to the word avak, dust, those who kick up dust. Okay, like like for now, all we can do is, okay, I will take the Noam Elimelech's word for that, but you can bet he's going to do something with this. That's clever. Does that mean it's only, you read this, depending on the context, it means one or the other? No. Yavek means to wrestle. Avak means dust, period, always. So, but what the masters of our wisdom literature, our sacred literature do, is they say... But the world was created using the Hebrew language. The letters of Hebrew sustain the entire universe. Therefore, that can't be an accident. <laughs> the master, the Holy One, blessed be God, made the universe with Hebrew letters. And the Yavek is related to Avak. cannot be an accident. Let us explore the relationship, he would say. That the assumption is that this this wasn't written by men, that these words actually in the Torah are, are, are holy, holy, come from God, and that there are mysteries in them, and that if we can only unpack them, we'll find out what those mysteries are. Correct. So Bert makes a very important point. This word that's found in Torah, right? Torah is written by God. So there's obviously... A hundred million things that that one word could reveal if we only knew the secrets of how to unlock it. So here's one. We're going to learn one secret tonight, right, about what's going on there. All right. So just in case um, this is getting too confusing, I've given you my notes that I typed up to try to make the connections clearer for you. So you see that line from Genesis, yes? Is there an extra one of those so I can see what you're looking at? Thank you, because I forgot already. Um, all right, so I've given you the the sentence from, from Genesis 32.4 that Yaakov sent messengers before him to Asaph, his brother, to the land of Seir, to the field of Edom. That's the first verse we got uh, quoted by the Noam Elimelech, right? He's going to link it to another verse, but he's going to go back to the first verse and unpack it some more too. So I made you the notes on what he does with that. Okay? But we're not there yet. All right. So someone start with, there is a debate. Second paragraph. We've gotten so far. Have we not? Okay. There is a debate regarding the verse in the Talmud, Helen 91a. One opinion is that Jacob thought the person he wrestled with was a non-Jew. And another opinion is that he thought the person was a rabbinical scholar. <laughs> this seems very strange. It's All right. like a very strange argument. So one thing that's important to know about the context is Hasidism was challenged as a movement. When Hasidism came on the scene, it was 100% challenged by the rabbinic regular people. Why? 
because it was a movement about ecstasy, about ecstatic practice, about the Jew in the pew being able to access the secrets of the universe, right? And it's like the, the elites, the Talmudic pilpul scholars were not interested at all in having the Jews dance and sing and reach ecstatic union with the one, God forbid. It was about following halacha. Is this chicken kosher? Is it not kosher? Can you do this on Shabbat? Can you not? Or might, how do you kosher a microwave oven? Right? They, they wanted normative practice. And all this other stuff was getting a little too flippy-dippy. That sounds familiar. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? They do yoga in a synagogue. like So all the ways that the establishment gets really nervous about a popular movement that threatens to take its adherence somewhere else, right? So the rabbinic establishment was deeply opposed to Hasidism. It burned their books. It was, it got very serious. Sounds familiar too. The Reconstructionist Prayer Book, I think Birgit is referring to, the 1945 Reconstructionist Prayer Book was burned by the Orthodox in the streets. So it, it does not go away. This is what we do, right? Not just as Jews, as human beings, this, this is what we do. So that's why this says there's an argument, right? Who Who was it that Jacob was wrestling with, right, who attacked him? Who would be attacking Yaakov? Well, if Yaakov's the tzaddik, who would attack a tzaddik? A non-Jew? We're talking about seriously troubled times for Jews in Europe, right? That's who's writing this. Jews who have suffered from pogroms, from mass murder, right? So who would attack Yaakov? Well, obviously, it's got to be a Gentile or someone from the mainstream rabbinic community. <laughs> who's most threatened? The non-Jew and the rabbis. That's who's most threatened by the tzaddik, by the Hasidic practitioner. All right, now that makes a little more sense to us. All right, keep reading to understand this. Somebody? To understand this, we need to explain the verse. Your word is well refined, and your servant loves it. Well, of course. Psalm 119. Well, of course. To understand this, we must turn, of course, to Psalms 119, verse 140. This is the game. This is the game of love. What you know fluently and by heart, you can easily pick. If I said to you, uh, if I had a hammer, it wouldn't take you long to have a stream of associations, would it? With a bell and a song to sing. Right? So that's what this is. That's all they did. They studied these texts all the time. These were their popular song lyrics. The Psalms were the Beatles to them. For the, and for them, this is love. Think about you artists, right? You know, you, one image leads you to another, leads you to another, leads you to another very quickly down the associative trail. So it is for the rabbis. This is their art form. These are their lyrics. These are their paintbrushes, right? These are their flutes. So, well, of course, this must lead us to Psalm 119, verse 140, which I have put on your, hopefully, on your notes. Yes, I did. So we're going to get there. All right. 
It is known, somebody read it, it is known that it's Sadiq's prayer. It is known that it's Sadiq's prayer is answered when he prays for a sick person or for others in need. This seems as if the Holy Blessed One is subject to change. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. But the root of the matter is as follows. The Blessed One created letters which in their original state are pure potential. A tzaddik can reconfigure the letters so that they form whatever words he wants. These configurations are what a tzaddik does in prayer. He makes his own combinations. His prayer does not cause change in the creation. Heaven forbid. As the letters he is using were always there. All he is doing is is creating new combinations. What is the problem the Noam Eli Melech is coming to answer? If a tzaddik, because now we're we're really explicating a tzaddik's prayer. And the tzaddik's ability to affect real change through prayer. That's the topic we're discussing. Not Jacob. Not Psalms. We're discussing the tzaddik's ability. Remember, this is a lesson to the tzaddik in training. The tzaddik's ability to touch that other realm and really affect healing in the world. What is the problem with that duh? We know tzaddik can do that. Because if the tzaddik's prayer can change the outcome, then God's not omniscient or omnipotent because what was going to be is not what has happened now. So the problem is, if a tzaddik's prayer changes God, that's a problem. It's a problem on a lot of levels. It doesn't mean God's not omniscient. And it doesn't mean God's not omnipotent. It means God changes. That for the Neoplatonists, the Neo-Aristotelians, right, Maimonides, all those folks, it makes them very nervous because it means God's not perfect. If something's perfect, it doesn't change, right? So it gives so much power to the person to pray that you can make changes. In what is perfect. If God is perfect, God can't change to say, you had cancer, but now you don't because the tzaddik prayed to me. There's a change in me, God. God forbid I would be indicating me for God. But right, there's a change in God. Then if there's a change in God, something wasn't perfect. And needed to change. And needed to change. Well, in line with the tzaddik's understanding of what should be that or God is influenceable. That means God's not perfect either, right? This is a huge issue. Today, you ask me what are, what are one of my biggest challenges dealing with myself and every other Jew in non-Orthodox Judaism. What is the point of prayer? I don't believe in a God who's going to cure your I don't want to believe you. Who's going to cure that person's cancer? I don't believe that. I don't believe that if I pray, I, Rabbi Amy Bernstein prays, that God is going to change God's mind, because God caused it, or God can fix it, and God will change God's will to do that because I pray. I don't believe that. So then what's the point of prayer? And how does it work? If the tzaddik actually affects healing, how does that work if it's not by influencing God? We just got the answer. It creates new combinations. We have to unpack it. What does creating new combinations mean? Moving the letters around. Moving the letters around. Now, 
You can say that is just ridiculous, Rabbi. That's fine. But ask me to explain how I think prayer works. And it's not far off from this answer. There are things going on in the universe we do not see. Right? They used to say, what, bugs, micro bugs that are on your hands are causing infections, bugs that are invisible? Right. Right? Until a doctor figured out when he washed his hands before delivering a baby, people quit dying. Right? So there's things going on that we can't see. And it's about somehow reorganizing what goes on that we can't see that seems to affect change. In what ways? I don't pretend to know. Right? How? I don't know. Um, But we know that there's stuff that goes on that we don't see. A segue question. Yeah. Um, what if God did not cause that person's cancer? I'm sorry? What if God did not cause that person's cancer? Yeah. What if the cancer was caused by something other, <laughs> and then our prayer to God might be able to cure it? So the problem remains the same. It doesn't matter how the cancer got there. If I don't pray, God's not going to cure it. But if I pray, now God's going to do something that God wasn't going to do before. That's a problem. The perfect, omniscient, all-powerful, perfect God does not start from, I'm not going to, now I'm going to. Because you're in conversation with me. That's biblical. Abraham could do that. Moses could do that. That's a different theology. The Hasidim are already dealing with a different theology that says it's problematic to suggest there's a change in the perfect one. This is a tough one for us in English because the word pray, when we think of prayer in English, generally we think only of petition. Right. That, and, and even even the idea of what the sacrifices are, we think of that's what people did in order to change God's mind, which is a rather primitive, pre-Jewish idea of what sacrifice was. But we, it's tied up with the English language. As which well. part? When, well, when we say prayer... Uh-huh. It, it tends to mean, for English speakers, prayer of petition. They, they mean that here too. They mean that here too. They mean a prayer of petition. They mean a Misha Berach. The Tzaddik's going to do a prayer of petition, a Misha Berach, and the Kaddish Baruch who's going to change its mind. There's still a problem. God changing God's mind is a problem. All right. We just have to accept that it's a theological problem. Maybe not for you, but for some people, for them, it's an issue, which I think is a huge issue in our time. People who don't believe in a God who has a mind, or certainly doesn't believe that mind can be changed, what's going on with prayer? Why does, for some people, it seems to work, whatever that means, right? I like to think of these, I hate to use a sports analogy. Oh, but here we go. <laughs> you know, before the game, and you got two locker rooms. And both locker rooms are, you know, they have a prayer service to win. And this poor God trying to figure out, you know, all these people are like hawking them. Right? So we know that whatever team wins, God listened to. That, you see the problem. But this is where I introduced the concept that God may not cause either team to win or to influence. None of us believe God causes either team to win. Okay. We still pray. We pray because we hope that God might change it in our favor. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that does not presume. That does not mean. It presumes that there's a God who could. Yeah. Most of us don't have a God who could. I don't. 
I do. I don't. Okay. No, I don't think God cares. All right, so I share the same problem. Maybe you don't, but I share the problem of the Hasidim, which is my God doesn't do that. So what's prayer pray. about? They don't pray the Hasidim? Betach, they pray. Let's, let's keep going, and you'll see if it answers any of your questions. All right, so we could still ask, page 120, because we're not getting very far very fast, are we? <laughs> you could still ask, why is it Sadiq's prayer more effective? If anyone can rearrange the letters, if all the Sadiq is doing is rearranging the realities of the universe, the unseen letters of the universe, because they have that ability, um, wh- why is it Sadiq's prayer more effective than the prayer of any other person? Indeed, the sages wrote in Babylonian Talmud, right? Baba Bacha 116a. If there's a sick person in your home, approach a sage to pray. So even those rabbis who would be against the Hasidim know if you go to a Chacham, if you go to a Tzaddik and you ask them, to, that's what you should do when someone is sick in your house. Go ask a Talmud Chacham to pray. Go ask a Tzaddik to pray. Why couldn't any person pray and reconfigure, reconfigure the letters? This is because the Torah was created. Here comes the key. This is why I love this text. That is because the Torah was created with love. As we say, and here comes what we say, the one who chooses the people Israel be'ahava, in love. A tzaddik also loves both God and every person in the world. For example, Rav Yochanan said, I greet every person in the marketplace before they have a chance to greet me, including non-Jews. Remember, in a time where they lived very much in tension sometimes with the local Gentile population, he greeted everyone first. Why is that such a big deal? Greeting someone first. Because generally it was the superior person who was addressed first. The superior person, you pay homage by good morning, Peter, right? You don't expect a person superior to you to acknowledge you first. So Rabbi and Rabbi Yohanan knows that. And he's, he made an effort. He made a point to greet every person first in the marketplace. Most people are not like this and therefore do not have the power to reconfigure the letters only a tzaddik who loves everyone has that power. This is the meaning of the verse. Now we're at Psalm 119, verse 140, in case you were wondering. <laughs> this is the meaning of the verse. Your word is tsrufa, well-refined. It refers to the supernal letters that have one configuration in potential, and are reconfigured, metsuafim, in actuality, by the all-loving tzaddik through the service of love. What is he saying? <laughs> Job security. Um, <laughs> that all of this business of the world being created with God's mag- right, God's amazing, miraculous power of speech, vayihi or. The world is literally created for them, right, for the tradition, through speech, through those letters. And they stay here, right? They're still what makes up the universe. In potential, 
I could rearrange certain of those letters to create a new actual. It's there. The Big Bang. I, Amy Bernstein, was at the Big Bang, the scientists would tell me. But I wasn't there in actual. I was there what? In potential. Any, anybody will tell you who knows anything about this stuff, and I do not know a lot about this stuff, but they tell me that everything that would ever be was there at that infinitesimally nothing everything point of the origin of the Big Bang. But not in actuality. It was in potential. The rabbis work a lot in the realm of at least the medieval uh, folks, the Neo-Aristotelians, the Neoplatonists, they're working a lot in the realm of potential to actual. I potentially was a nurse. I did not actualize Amy as nurse. I was potentially a ballet dancer. I did not actualize Amy as ballet dancer. I actualized the potential of Amy as teacher, as rabbi. Right? So... There's lots of, there's all kinds of, there's infinitum, odd infinitum of potential that Sadik, out of great love, is able to move the potential around and make it begashmute in reality, in actuality. Is that by making words? So, you you know, I'm thinking of, well, if the Sadik says the words, they work. And if another person says the words, they don't work, but the letters are in the same configuration. <laughs> so it seems that out of, it seems that he's suggesting, which I, that's what I love about the lesson, that the, the actuating agent is love of all people. And most of us do not achieve that. So it's the intention that, with which the words are said. It seems it's even pre the intention of the words. It's my capacity or my choice to actualize my own potential for loving every human being, doing all the work that that entails on oneself. That that is what enables me to say the words with an intention that now has a different result in the world. It's not just kavanah. It's not just the strength of the intensity of the intention of the tzaddik, it's that the tzaddik loves everyone. And that is what gives the tzaddik's words the power to alter reality. With all due respect, was this written by a tzaddik? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the rabbi saying. Yeah. yeah, well, did you come here thinking it was going to be light and easy stuff? But then, all right, all right. Then so, what is love? I mean, oh, Jimmy's going to push it now. Wait a minute. I think that's a good Leonard Cohen said in a song that I love that love's the only engine of survival. Love is the only engine of survival, and they would add healing. How much Midwest? But, but again, I go back to my question, what is love? They're not going to answer that question. Why? Because they assume you know. They assume you know. And we don't want to go there. And we don't want to do that. We know what it means to love, to act as if we love someone else. And we don't do it. And most of us don't even have it really as a goal. 
We want to be nice enough to not get kicked out by the clan and left for toast on the savannah as tiger food, right? But really, most of us want to get away with, if I can pass someone in the supermarket and not have to say hello, that's really where most of us are most of the time. And they know that. That's who they're writing to, right? Or people who know they want more than that. And I believe this is a strengthening text, right? This this is a text that's meant to work the muscles of a tzaddik who really, who's someone who's trying to really love everyone and treat everyone with respect. And this is like fuel. This is like power food, right? This is spirulina, wheatgrass for the budding tzaddik. And it is I mean, amazing. I think this is at a time when they were being, you know, pogromized. And... <laughs> pogromized. No, but I mean, that, you you yeah. would expect that love would be the love answer. Would be what you would say at that point. That's exactly right. You want to talk? You would expect more revenge and violence. And they knew that. They knew that that's the human tendency, and they know that is not the spiritually mature answer. Yes, writing to take vengeance is absolutely the instinct. And some people would argue is the only dignified, respectable, right thing to do when they've attacked your town. They also knew that didn't get the Jews very far generally. They were crushed the next day by a bigger army, right? Um, But also that that's not a spiritually refined place to stay. Because it just leads to bigger and bigger battles and more and more revenge, and more and more blood killings, until nobody's left. All right. So, Excuse me, let me just say, I think the reason there are so few tzaddiks is because they were all killed by the people who didn't love the tzaddik. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is the great challenge. This is the great challenge. One of the things that's been said about us as a people, by our people, I don't mean by anybody else, God forbid, by Jews, have said the best, the gentlest, the most loving among us were the first to die. Because they're the first to give their hat to somebody else who would be shot if they didn't have a hat. They were the first to share their bread, and so they were the first to die. And that is absolutely, you know, a big part of where this tradition went. Is it... Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. So what we can hope, I personally, why do I continue to teach this? Because I believe if more of the world had this as an understanding of what is the mature, responsible thing to do, even in the face of terrible things, then they wouldn't be gassed, the gentle ones. They'd be the leaders and the council of elders and they'd be the ones making the decisions. And you can be as cynical as you want. It's fine. I don't get paid to be cynical. I don't. I get paid to inspire hope and to find ways for me to continue to hope. So I'm not saying cynicism is not a legitimate response. I'm just saying I'm not here to indulge it. Okay. Yeah, but they're also modeling. I think somebody who's a sadiq is modeling. And when they go like that, the people that are have less understanding, they see that and they go, oh, okay, that's a lesson for the ages. And then maybe they would aspire to have some kind of... All, all of the martyrs of history, right, who refused, who turned the other cheek, right, all of the people who knew their lives were in danger, who chose... Not, right, Martin Luther King, all, all the martyrs, I, I think absolutely they hope, they trust that their way of choosing to stay true to what they believed was the right response would be a teaching and a model 
for those who came after them. And we still lift those people up in many ways as heroes, and they do inspire some of us to be bigger and more than we might be otherwise. I don't think there is anyone in this room who could say that Korsha, who I think his name was really Goldblum or something like that, the Dr. Spock of Poland, who was a Jew, and ran an orphanage, I don't think anyone here would say that it was foolish of him to not leave Poland when he had a chance, but to walk with the children of his orphanage to the trains and be with them when they were killed. He went into the gas chambers with them rather than leave them. When you come out of Yad Vashem, there's him, you know, the statue, the sculpture of him with his arms around his, his children saying, I won't leave them in this moment of terror to be afraid. I have to, of course, what can we say other than it's the most noble response there is, is the response of love. I love these children. There's no way I'm looking to self-preservation instead of activating that and living truly into that love that for him was what his whole life was about. There was very much evidence that he, he was given papers to leave and he chose to stay. He, he spoke very publicly about his choice. I will not leave my children. It's interesting that here it's we're talking about tzaddikim and not religiously observant. <laughs> Correct. Or pray three times a day. And yet they would have done that. Well, they would have done. They would have done all of that. But it's the tzaddik that the part that makes this all work is. It wasn't the person who kept kashrut the best, right? <laughs> right? Who wins? Right? It's the person who does that and lives from another place. All right, let's try to get through it a little bit more. So Yaakov sent messengers before him. Remember we talked about sending messengers to Asaf? It's his Torah. It's written by God for these people. There must be more than that he sent messengers. Okay, yes, he sent messengers, but it's got to mean more than that. And of course, it does for, for this wonderful text. It means what? That before him means that the letters were What's what's before it before you in Hebrew? Lifanav. Right? Literally in front of his face. So they were out there already, right? The messengers were before him, they were already there. The potential was there before Jacob. And he then made combinations of the letters through the power of his love for all. This is implied in the words. Where did he send those messages that were already there? To his brother, Esav. Meaning, he totally accepted even Esav, his enemy, who wanted to kill him as a brother. Like Rav Yochanan, whose love included even non-Jews in the marketplace. So what was, what was Yaakov's ability, you know, to reconfigure the letters when he got to the place that he could love even Esav as a brother. Because it's often not the enemy out there, is it? It's the enemy closer to us that we really can't accept, right? It's an ex-wife, an ex-husband, right? It's somebody who betrayed your kid, right? Who's in the family, 
It's fill in the blank, a brother, a sister, somebody, right, who betrays you, who hurts you. It's often the ones closest to us that it's actually the hardest to, to get over that, that last boundary of loving everybody. Like I can love everybody except. And that's often somebody very close. I mean, it, it is in my own life. Well, but also, I mean, if you go back to the story, um, it would be, seem to me that it would be more Esau that would have reason to hate Jacob because Jacob was the one that really did the original betrayal. And so inherent in that, it seems that he has to for, Jacob has to forgive Jacob in order to forgive Esau. Lovely. So for us, that would make a lot of sense. Remember the rabbis? See what he did as correct behavior because, I mean, it wasn't nice, but he was supposed to be the next patriarch. So what he did was an, an essential okay, even though it wasn't nice the way he did it, right? Um, but Isaac was wrong, and Yaakov was writing that wrong with Rivka's help. So, um, but I think true, if we, if we read it, it's Yaakov who made Esau hate him by taking something from him twice. And so, for sure, it is the part of us that we judge as unworthy of love that has to be forgiven and integrated and accepted by ourselves before we have any possibility of truly loving other people. 100%. Very, very nice reading, Susan. dark part of ourselves, like the mm-hmm. Jacob part, which is also supposedly Israel, is also in in, in, in com, uh, combat, uh, in, in war within ourselves of that part. As you mentioned before, I would say difficult to forgive ourselves. And it's always uh, that voice that comes around, isn't it? What you're trying to say, I don't have that's what I want to say. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a part of the, the whole wrestling narrative is there this, there's this other reading of it that is about Yaakov's really wrestling with a dark part of himself. 100%. So that's what Susan was just saying. 100%. That we, we have to do that work before we have any hope of loving anybody else. If we don't do the work of wrestling with the dark part of ourselves, the part that pulls us under, the part that doesn't love ourselves, the part that we don't love, the part we want to split off, the part we're ashamed of, Right? The part we want to divorce, right? And hide. That, that part, deny, right? That, if we don't figure out how to wrestle that and come to an integrated place of wholeness, we don't have any hope or prayer of really truly ever being able to love anybody else. We have to own it. We have to own it. And we have to love ourselves fully. Acceptance. All right. So moving on with, this continued lightness. Um, <laughs> um, so also do we understand the phrase, a person wrestled with him. The word vayavek refers to traces of something like in the expression, traces of usury. Avak. This word avak. Rebeat. In reality, a person may not love all equally, Jews and non-Jews. Remember, written by people who are threatened by non-Jews. Who would we fill in, fill in the blank for us today? What? Radical Islam? Radical Muslims. I mean, fill in whatever it is that terrifies you the most about human population and read that instead of non-Jew. Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, 
The love for a Jew could be complete while the love for that one that scares the heck out of us might still be lacking. Duh, right? Still retaining traces of foreignness. You, I can figure out how to love Sarah Moskowitz. But an Islamic terrorist? There's there's too much that's foreign about that for me to accept that we are close enough for me to actually get to a place of behaving towards that person as if I love them. Okay. This is the Talmudic opinion that Jacob thought the person was not Jewish. Right? So that would make sense. Who who would he wrestle with the hardest? Who would he struggle with? Who would he wrestle with the most to try to love? The one that we demonize, right? Like the one that we see is most foreign from us. That was the struggle. To rid himself of the traces of foreignness that remained. Because really if I say you're too foreign for me to love, what am I really saying? I'm foreign to you. It's really me who has to remove being foreign to see you as somebody I could be in relationship with at all. To a relationship to. Similarly, the Talmudic opinion that Jacob thought the person was a scholar, (laughs) right, implies that Jacob's love for this person was not complete. So that's the other argument. One is that it was a non-Jew. One is the other argument in the Talmud was that it was a Sprepinic scholar. This is because Jacob realized that this scholar had not yet perfected his personality traits. Jacob did love him. But this love was still incomplete because of these deficiencies. So I love you for who I think you could become if you worked hard enough at it. In other words, it's not a foreigner. It's the I've got my standards. And if you work just hard enough, you are somebody I could love. That's still not a complete love. Right? If my partner would just stop doing this, that, and the other, I could be the perfect partner to her. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Then we'd have a complete and perfect love. If she would just overcome her deficiencies. <laughs> right? Do what you want. <laughs> right. So let me go on record as saying it is I who has all the deficiencies. But the really funny part about that is... Um, that, that, that the person he's wrestling with is this Talmudic scholar. Well, there was no Talmud yet because there was no Torah yet. Of course. This is what the Torah was all about. So Yaakov was a Tzaddik. Yaakov was a Tzaddik so for he them. Existed outside he was a Hasidic Tzaddik. Yeah. Of course. Torah is true for all time. Not just once upon a time. It's not a history book. It's true for it's all time. Now. Yeah, 100%. Isn't it true that it's a reflection of ourselves? Yeah, always. Yes. Yeah. There's no other point to writing this. It's yes. It's all about our own reflection. Yes. Yes. So it's really about doing the work here. It's not about fixing them. Who cares about them? The work is here. Because what I feel about you is never about you. It's always about me. I cannot like what you do. I cannot like what you think. I cannot like what you believe. But if you're a human being, this teaching, and you can agree with it or not, I'm just teaching you the teaching, is that some things are only able to be affected when we truly love another human being regardless. Spiritual axiom. If, if, if there is a problem, if I have a problem with someone else, it's not their problem, it's my problem. That's exactly right. That's right. 
So I hate the haters. Huh, interesting. So I hate the haters. So who's hating? Me. So I'm not pretending I'm one of these, by the way. Let's be very clear. I'm not pretending I'm here. I'm not suggesting, oh, I've got this down. Ask me how you two can do this. I'm nowhere near any of this. I hate the haters. I hate haters. (laughs) Right? But I'm open to a teaching that suggests, huh, Rabbi, you might want to look at that. (laughs) Hating the haters, right? You might want to look at what that actually creates in your life. Right, right? I'm intolerant of that. You might want to just, I invite you to look at that. So I'm invited into the text as everyone else who's been brave enough to come here tonight. Okay, this is the meaning of the verse. A man wrestled with him until the rise of dawn, until alot hashachar, literally until the dawn light came up, arose. He struggled to remove the darkness within himself and to achieve perfect love. He didn't wrestle till the dawn, God forbid. You should think that's all that means. When did he wrestle till? Alot hashachar. Till the light came up in him. You got to wrestle until the light comes up. You don't get to say, I've been doing this for six months. And so I'm done. Because that's as, that's as much time as this project's getting. <laughs> right? You wrestle until the light comes on. So the Talmudic debate is not so strange after all. Could you Would you have believed half an hour ago you would be saying, oh yeah, that's true. So the Talmudic debate is not so strange after all. Each position, meaning the Gentile or the, the rabbinic scholar, highlights a different aspect of Jacob's ability to achieve perfect love for every person. You shouldn't think that the debate in the Talmud is actually a debate. It's actually two aspects of the way that Yaakov had to overcome his own resistance to love. The Gentile, who was all about being so different from me, I don't have anything to do with you. And the person who hates me, so I'm going to hate you back. Someone in my own clan. Someone in my own business. Someone in my own family, right, who pushes me away and judges me, which is what was happening to the Hasidim by the rabbinic scholars. Um, Both are aspects of what we have to overcome. The biggest challenges, the place we have to wrestle the longest and the hardest. Those, Those are two. People who we think are so different from us and the people who are very close to us who say, right, you don't do it right, Amy. You're not a good enough daughter. Fill in the blank, right? What is it? The ways we've disappointed the people closest to us. Okay. Or or the way they think we've disappointed them. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> right? So turn in your packets. To. Where am I going to skip to? Um, go to 123. And the bottom paragraph on 123. What kind of knowledge is this? This knowledge about how to rearrange the letters, right? To to take what's potential and move things around so that they a new actuality emerges. 
In the opening of the homily, the Noam Elimelech treats the process of reconfiguring the letters as a technical skill that anyone could learn. If that's the case, what need is there for a tzaddik? It is at this point that the Noam Elimelech moves away from a purely mystical, magical model, meaning if I just know the right abracadabra, I, like Harry Potter, can make whatever I want to have happen that's in potential be actual. But I have to know the right spell at the right time with the right wand. Yes? And the right goat's hair and the right spider teeth and whatever else. The power to effect change, says the Noam Elimelech, this is where he moves away from the mystical magical model. The power to effect change does not depend on esoteric knowledge or practices alone but rather on the way an individual relates to the people and the world surrounding him. That is a big move. Mm-hmm. It's not about esoteric knowledge. It's really about the self and how the self relates to other selves in the world. The absolute love, ahavashlema, that the tzaddik has for every person is the force that changes on its own, by its own power, reality. That is a huge statement, George. Yeah, two things. One, yes, sir. The definition of prayer in the Reconstructionist is indeed self-introspection. That's one thing. The other thing is this argument is currently taking place in the death penalty in the Bahamas and the Boston Marathon. And people are talking about, you know, no death penalty because it's spiritually right. And the other one, we've got to get back. It's even. I really don't believe in the death penalty except for this case. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's magnificent to hear the discussion, which is what this is. Right. That even the person who bombed innocent civilians in a marathon, if we are really true to our values that say, like I'm just saying, what if we're on that side that say we don't believe in killing other people? Then I have to, if I'm really going to be true to that, which is I, what I hear you saying that's what's here. If I really love another person enough that I'm not going to murder them, no matter what they've done, then I can't make an exception because this one outrages me more. And these are real arguments. I mean, these are yeah, it's going on right now. I know. So that's great that you bring it right into today, into what's happening in our justice system, right? Because, because that's what I love. But these texts are not, for people who are not part of the world, that they do have something to say to us, right? About what, what, when are we called out on what we say are our ultimate values? They say it in a very complex way. <laughs> they say it in a very complex way, yes. Indeed. Well, also, but it's also from so many years ago, so I think it's just complex also because it's a different, a different language and a different culture. Right. So we're having to jump over all those. Right. Hurdles, yeah, which his students did not have to do. Right, right. His students would have understood. They would have skipped to right now in this year, right now in the lesson. They wouldn't have needed the first hour, right? I mean, they would have understood most of what came out of his mouth. Um, they had a greater capacity of introspection because they didn't have all these diversions that we have in modern life. That's exactly right. <laughs> which, know, which is to, you know, which is not a small like part of the problem. My, what, what, what is my motive? Right. What am I doing? You know? Right. There are not 500 people in this room, right? Because most of us are usually, including myself, right, on our phones, on our email, checking our texts, you know, preparing for work tomorrow, like walking the dog. We're, we're doing... 
And now, more than ever, we are so distracted and distractible. As a result, we're losing the power for attention and intention that is introspective, reflective. We are really losing the capacity to sit still and struggle through even a text like this. Right? They're talking about, I, I, I read the book, um, Blink, you know, Think. <laughs> <laughs> I've read both, but I was reading Think, uh, you know, and she says, you know, like we don't even have the power to sit through. We we read an article. We really can't read the whole book by the author because, like, to follow an argument through nine chapters, we just don't have. We don't. Most of us choose to exercise our capacity to follow an argument that long anymore, through all the intricacies and the history and the what it means and what are the implications and right and what are my proofs that. We don't have the patience or the capacity anymore of attention. And so it's true. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of barriers for us to enter this. And so good for all of you that this is where you chose to be tonight. That, you know, anytime you choose to, to engage in this kind of stuff, like, good for you. All right. So let's see how we can begin to close this out. All right, go to 125. And this is Eben Leader. Yes, this is Eben Leader, I should be clear. We've left the Noam Elimelech. Eben Leader is now talking about the Noam Elimelech's text, explicating it for us. Second paragraph of 125. As mentioned previously, miracle working poses a theological challenge for the Noam Elimelech. How was it possible for the tzaddik to assert his will over the unchanging will of the creator? The idea of reconfiguring letters helps solve this difficulty by explaining that the tzaddik is not actually creating anything new, but rather is simply changing the relationship among existing elements. In other words, the tzaddik is reframing the situation so that the existing elements are seen in a new light in which new realities are made possible. Surely every single one of us relates to this part of it. Yes? To what Eben Leader is saying. Reframing a situation so that the existing elements are seen in a new light and new realities for us are made possible. Is this like thinking out of the box? 100%. Or about reframing. I can see being adopted as being a victim of tragic circumstances where I was abandoned and given away. Or I could take the same existing set of facts and reframe it in such a way that I say, I am not tied to a family of origin and blood kin. I know nothing about that. I am available, therefore, to relationship with anybody in the universe, and I am freed up to become whatever I want. That's a reframe that creates new possibilities. Yes? But that is only true in a subjective perspective. No. In the objective perspective, when that person has cancer, rearranging the words or the letters will not necessarily create a new reality on the ground. Who's going to tell the dying person who's dying of cancer what their reality is going to be? It is their reframing of that experience. I've been at the bedside, my friend, 
I've been at the bedside plenty of times where I've watched somebody reframe the entire thing to say, this is an opportunity for me to say the things to my children I never said. Now I've been given the gift of time to do that. I was not hit by a bus and I did not die in a tsunami. I have the last gift of time to sit with my adult children and tell them the things I regret and tell them the things I wish I'd always said. That is about a reframe that creates new possibilities. That is all it's saying. That is true always. That we can always reframe a situation and open up new possibilities. We can also say, screw it. I shouldn't be dying. I'm very pissed off about that. And I'm going to my grave pissed off. Okay. So then no new possibilities got created because there was no reframe. It's up to us. Do we reframe it or not? That is the only possibility. Cancer is cancer. Death is death. What's possibility? What's the possibility? Me reframing what that means. Can't, but we can't cure the cancer by praying. And who knows? I mean, <laughs> and who knows? <laughs> I don't pretend to know. What I know is if I pray and if people pray with me, I might find the strength to reframe the reality in such a way that I am allowed the vista of new possibilities. And that is all we can pray for sometimes, and even most times maybe, because what we're given, we're given. The circumstances are the circumstances. And some people define themselves by their circumstances, which consumes them. And, you know, it's that they define their... they. They have cancer. What is, is they live in the morose or the self-pity of that. And just saying is that I have this, but I am not, I am not my circumstances. I don't define myself by my circumstances. Who was that master teacher that had a stroke and then could no longer, it was a yoga teacher. Like who, it was amazing meditation yoga teacher, practitioner who had a stroke and was now in a wheelchair, right? And they kept asking him, wow, how do you cope with that? How do you cope? And finally he said, stop talking to me about that person that I was. I'm not a person who's lost my ability to be a yoga teacher. I'm now a person in a wheelchair who's a teacher. Or Stephen Hawking. Right, or Stephen Hawking. Like, so to say, I have reframed. Can y'all move on and reframe, please? And stop talking about what I've lost. I'm not that person anymore. I'm not someone who's lost what I had. I'm now someone who's in a wheelchair who teaches. Can we talk about that, please? Because that's that's the new reality. The circumstances haven't changed. He's not getting out of that wheelchair, right? Except to go in a box. But the choice is, can I reframe that in a way that opens up truly new possibilities? Again, I'm not suggesting it's easy or that we're there. What do you think of reframing can also mean to reinvent or re- redo what love means to one, to oneself. Because as we grow older, depending on what age you are, or if you have, were mistreated, as we said, at home or, or, or whatever it is, sometimes you have to reinvent the mother in you. You have to reinvent the sister in you, or the one that you would want to have. That's what I'm talking about. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. Love. Right. So what that means, you have to define. Reinvent what love is. Absolutely. 126, top of the page. I would say, I think from that standpoint, it's more important that we hear, we hear our prayers 
So that we hear what we're saying, what we aspire to, what we want to uh, enable. I love Bert Kleinman. Yes, I just wanted to give George. This coming Friday, this Israeli sports uh, rehabilitation center, and two of the kids from there are coming. In general, I haven't met them, but they have re- their goal at the rehabilitation center is to reframe their lives. And the, the people who have come over, uh, and I suspect that these two kids will also tell you about who they are now and not what they were. So watch on the sanctuary camera. Better come on Friday, but to truly see what reframing does in reality. They take these kids who think they're limited, who experience limitation, um, and they reframe it right in, in a in a way that is unbelievably powerful. That these kids are, I mean, it's just unbelievable. These kids' stories and the confidence and the. And the joy that they radiate, it's, it's remarkable. Truly remarkable. Were you going to say something, Susan? Well, j- just briefly on, on the efficacy of prayer. Um, there was someone who hurt me very badly that I hated and that I was getting really messed up about. And my Torah study group suggested that I say the Mishaberat for this person. And after a very short time, an amazing healing was effected. And it was, I think, myself that was healed. But it was, it was efficacious. Thank you for sharing that. All right, 126, top of the page. God created the world with love. Be'ahava, we are told, as we say kiddush on Friday night, that God created it all. Be'ahava, gives us be'ahava, with love, in love. Shabbat. This love is by definition unlimited by any personal interest and is non-judgmental. It is built into the fabric of the universe. As it leads to the creation of the entire universe, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The Noam Elimelech teaches that if you aspire to recreate reality for others, you must have the capacity to integrate such love into your being. Through non-judgmental love and compassion, you can develop the capacity to see reality in a different light, not limited by your perspective or those of anyone else. Where there was once only anger and conflict, you can see love and care. When there was once only death and despair, you can see life and hope. Through your love for the people you are working with, this vision can be communicated to others and reality can change without changing that which is given and in their language, the ultimate will of God. So we are struggling always. He closes uh, that middle paragraph of page 126. The Noam Elimelech teaches more than once that we're not talking about a person who has achieved perfection. Yaakov had to wrestle. The tzaddik, Yaakov, still had to wrestle because he's not perfect. You're never going to achieve it, by the way, says the Noam Elimelech. Everything we've been talking about for the last hour and 15 minutes, you're never going to achieve it all the time. 
you're going to have to, yeah, Vic, you're going to have to wrestle because somebody's going to piss you off. Mm-hmm. Right? Pardon my French. Somebody's going to trigger something that you haven't quite gotten to working out yet. And guess what's going to happen? We're right back to I hate the haters. So does the just mean that when you're not able to do it, and you have to deal with the old stuff that is dusty and dirty and rotten, that it's there, but you can still work it some of the time. Lovely, Sarah Moskowitz. There's always going to be a vac. There's always going to be dust and dirt and filth. And that means we're going to have to... There's always a vac. So get to yeah, baking, right? Because... That's what you got to do. You got to deal with the dust. You have to deal with the dirt. So he's not, he hasn't reached perfection. Rather, he's a person who is always traveling along a path, always struggling for improvement, like a bush that is always burning, but is not consumed. consumed. Lo uchal, it is not totally eaten up. Good night. Thank you.